Tour is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace and it's the perfect app for travel. I was recently traveling overseas for seven weeks in multiple cities. Turo made it so easy to find the type of car that I needed in each city, including various things like a car seat, snow tires, and a lot of space. I live in SF Austin and Sydney, and I use their cars wherever I am and when I'm traveling. I don't have a car in SF and Austin, and we just use Turo. The booking process is so convenient, and the hosts are awesome. Go to Turo.com and download the app today. Sendar is the OG startup accounting firm in Australia, catering for all stages of your business's life. If you're busy running your startup, you don't have time to do your own books and forecast. Instead, fully outsource your finance function, giving you time and resources back to focus on what you do best, which is growing your business. For a free one-hour consultation about your business's growth plans and finance needs, head to sendar.com. That's S-C-E-N-D-A-R.com. Okay, three, two, one. Hey, I'm Cheryl. I'm Maxine. This is First Check, part of Day One, the network dedicated to founders, operators, and investors. If you want to be a better early stage investor, this is the show for you. So TLDR, if you don't want to suck at investing, listen up. So Maxine, you got trained to come on our podcast. Super excited. I did. I did. I know. I can't wait. Poor Trang, I've like been hitting her up recently for so many opportunities to talk just because I find her so fascinating. <laughs> it's probably going to be like three sessions that I get to pepper her with questions in a 30-day period. And hopefully she doesn't get bored of you or annoyed with you. <laughs> oh, I think she will. But more importantly is I am not bored of her and her content. So excited to have her. That is much more important, clearly. Um, <laughs> She, uh, her portfolio is absolutely crazy. Like the fact that she invests in funds of funds. I think she has more fund investments wild than I have direct investments, which makes her indirect investments in the thousands. Yeah, like orders of magnitude of our portfolio for sure. She's got like 50 fund investments and that wouldn't include like all of the funds that she would get to look at along her journey. She also has 36,000 LPs in her like broader community. She used to run an LP community. And so like she just has this amazing vantage point like two LPs. So like the people that invest in funds or invest in funds of funds and then this incredible vantage point, you know, into companies all the way down. So it's just like. I've heard they call it the uh, the LP crystal ball that she has. And <laughs> yes. she spoke about that at Web Summit. So I really wish I could have been there. She, yeah, yeah. She's like totally incredible. I also, I think it's really easy to, like from that vantage point for her to be quite consensus thinking, right? Like she would get so many data feeds, so to speak, from her LPs and the community of LPs and the companies that she invests in. But I I think this is like one of the most impressive things for me for her. She's just such a differentiated thinker. You know, so frequently she has kind of seen a trend or invested in a trend way before it's become even like part of the early adopters. And you can, she'll talk about that on the podcast, I'm sure. So yeah, she's just totally incredible. I'm such a fangirl, the poor thing. You know, <laughs> I should probably pe- stop peppering her with my excitement at this point. <laughs> Well, for now, uh, we'll welcome her on the podcast and we can think about maybe you stopping peppering her later. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so excited to have her on. And uh, welcome, Trang. Yeah, let's jump into it. So one of the first questions we always start off with is what is one of the first things that you ever invested in? The first thing that I ever invest in, like thinking of like an investment, like where I actually like thing a lot about is, is actually Tesla. 
Wow. And as you know, like a lot of people actually laugh at me when I bought Tesla because that was, I bought the company when it's when IPO, I think in 2011 or 2012. And the stock of Tesla, I believe it was flat for a good five to seven years and it did not take up until, you know, just in the last, you know, 12 to 24 months. But I think the reason for me to invest or make that investment is, you know, I just fundamentally believe in Tesla as the business model and I believe in Elon Musk and I never sold my stock, you know, so that's how to date has done well for me. And that's the way I think about the investment. It's like, I think very long term and, you know, I can be completely wrong. I think you heard the story, you know, like Apple, I mean, at some point Tesla almost went out business and, you know, it was offered to Apple and Apple should have bought it, but they didn't buy it. Right? <laughs> so there's a lot of crazy story, but I think whenever I make an investment, I always remind myself of what did I do when I invest in Tesla when it's when IPO. That's amazing. I, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who invested in their IPOs. You said it was like a very non-consensus bet for a very long time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. How did you first hear about it? And like, what got you to conviction early? If I can take you back to like, in like was 13 years ago? Yeah, that's when 2011 and 2012, right? That's when it's when IPO. Mm. So it's obviously like over, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> I you get involved in ventures earlier than that. And I do know, you know, investor who invest in Tesla on the private side. And a lot of these investors actually burn out, if you remember, because Tesla is such a capital intensive company. So even the seed investor in Tesla didn't make money. But, you know, when it when IPO is open to public investor, I just believe in the vision of the company as a whole. And I just believe in the founder. And that's kind of the reason why I invest in Tesla. And I believe in Elon Musk. I invest... I believe in, you know, the vision of the companies were very far-fetched then, but just like everything else, right? That's why we invest in quantum computing in 2017, right? Zanadu, it can go to zero, but, you know, if it's work now, you know, it's potentially can return multiple times the fun. You know, I think the, the whole things, I think like when I look at our investment thesis, it's about identify, you know, the future venture right? Which is we need to take risks. You know, when you invest in venture, you need to take risks. And we do that in terms of, you know, working or investing fund managers or companies as well. Because mm. otherwise you should go and do buyout, you know, or some something else. <laughs> not Or buy real estate. You get like very good returns buying real estate too. That doesn't sound nearly as fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm just saying that Venture by definition, you need to take risks, right? So absolutely, and what a cracker of a first investment! Yeah, no yeah. kidding. That's going to be up there with one of your best performing investments. Which one? The Tesla buy is that one of your best performing investments, both on PA and like on your personal investing and in the fund, or have you surpassed that personal investment? I don't know. I don't know. I think like we have <laughs> you know better investment than that. That was just my first investment. And wow! By the way, for the very long time, it's were flat, so it was not supposed to be return driver, right? <laughs> right. So that's what I mean is that yeah, yeah. even when you look at fund managers, right? For a long time, some of the fund may look like really bad, and then it's just taking off completely, right? Mm. And there's certain funds that take off early on and may not do well in the long run. So. 
that's just something to I think it's more like a lessons for me it, it's not even like about the investment returns it's about you know like kind of like how I think about kind of like investment thesis and investment belief it's not even like Tesla in terms of returns it's the fact that I invest in Tesla I was flat for almost 10 years and then it take off and the reason I believe invest in Tesla because I believe in Elon Musk and the vision of the company. Yeah, I think that really speaks to like the the like having to believe in the vision of the founder because you're essentially picturing a world that doesn't exist right now and saying, yeah, I believe in that future that you see. I may not see it, but I believe that you see it and that that could be the future. And especially it's if it's nowhere close, like five to seven years before anything started to take off. Like I can't picture what's going to happen two years from now, but you know, you you believe in a founder and their vision for something that's going to be a thing in ten years. It really speaks to like the type of investment that we do as venture investors. Yeah, I think like a lot of the time people forget is that the best founders they create you know like new market right. Look at Facebook, look at Amazon, look at Google. The best founders they create new markets, right? So. Sometimes people just analyze too much on, you know, market, but I really think, you know, sometimes you just need to bet on the people, you know, at the end of the day, venture is also, a, you know, the people business, right? Mm, yeah. Look at Slack. Slack was a video game company and, you know, we become something else. A hundred percent. Was it? Slack was a video game company? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. You didn't know that. What? Yeah. No, I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. Who did people invest in it then or did they only invest once it became what it is now? They did. No, no, they invested in it then. And then Slack was the internal communications tool that they built as they were trying to build a video game company. And then they realized they weren't going to get traction on the video game side. And then correct me if I'm wrong, they exited or like asked all of their team to leave, like a team that they loved. It was just the two founders and one person. So they went into like hibernation mode. Yeah. Yeah. Two founders, Stuart Butterfield and, and his wife. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. Huh. Oh, his ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing story. Amazing. But I mean, that's my point. Like, you know, sometimes you just need to back on the founders. The same with Brian Chesky. Like, do you think Coinbase would, you know, be Coinbase? Like, they would be a crypto exchange company in 2012. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. 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 It actually, I mean, it kind of you walking through the way you think about that Tesla investment makes it so clear to me why you built Transpose and kind of how you think about the generating these venture funds and supporting these venture funds. Yeah. It doesn't make it clear to me. Fill me in. No, no. We'll dive into that in a moment. <laughs> yeah. That's why we had to dive in. Yeah. Yeah. It, what's really interesting for me is like your context and that you've been thinking in this way for a very long time. So I wonder if you can kind of educate us a little bit on like what it is that you're building at Transpose and like how you came to conviction that this was worth building and what your journey has been to date? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And I think like that Tesla was really kind of like our investment belief and our investment thesis and that's what made it today. So when we, I mean, obviously both, you know, my co-founder Alex Bangash and myself, um, her history predate Transpo, right? But in 2015, when we formed Transpo, we had one goal is that we want to help ambitious entrepreneurs to change the game of venture capital, right? So to think, you know, outside of, you know, the norms, like, you know, just like the Tesla investment, right? To think outside of, you know, the traditional thought of creating, you know, first or second time fund, 
but really create a breakthrough in ventures that enable us to, you know, some of the most prominent venture investor calls like the Y Combinator for Proven Entrepreneurs, um, because it's highlighting our commitment to enables, you know, the entrepreneurs who are, you know, different stage of their journeys, right? So we enable a lot of entrepreneurs, founders, and operators to create funds or, you know, create platforms like an accelerator. So we involved Y Combinator very early on. We also back, you know, studio at scale, like for example, Entrepreneur First. We also like enable entrepreneurs and usually like identify entrepreneurs even before they have funds. So some of the funds that we have anchored to date, we work with entrepreneurs two years before they have funds, right? And then from that, you know, when we anchor the funds, we also work with them more than just, you know, a financial partner, but also a top partners so that they can create an institutionalized venture firm. And then we invest in companies from that. So to date, you know, transfer with sale, we have back over 50 GPs and most of them are like first or second time GPs and all oh, they don't even have deck before, you know, we talk to them. Uh, we invest in 76 companies directly. And we actually incubate one company named Hapo Network, which is a satellite connectivity device company uh, with a seasoned entrepreneur who had taken company public before. So that's kind of like our thesis is that we really want to, you know, identify entrepreneurs like the Elon Musk early on. We wouldn't back them in whatever structure. It can be a company like Hubble Network, right, or Tesla, so on. Um, you know, it can be in a venture structure like a venture studio where they can incubate multiple companies. It can be an accelerator, right? Or, you know, it can be a venture funds. But the one thing that we really want to work with these entrepreneurs is that we don't just want to back, you know, a venture funds. We want to back entrepreneurs who have ambition to set up the Amazon, the Apple, the Google venture capital, right? I mean, why we, why, when I look back, why back Tesla? Because he's such a visionary, right? He didn't, he just, it, he want to create Tesla, which is, you know, number one electric company, right? And then that's how we feel about, you know, venture capital. Once we look at, you know, managers that we want to back, we want them to have ambition to create a brand that is bigger than themselves, right? A brand where, like, if you look at Y Combinator today, right? Jessica Livingston in program, the two co-founders had created a brand that bigger than their personal brand, right? And, you know, we want to find, you know, those type funds, you know, where we think that's a future venture capital E, you know? That's so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How do you pick the, how do you identify emerging fund managers that you want to work with? Like what really makes them stand out to you? You've obviously worked with so many what are the first things that you identify within them to decide if you want to work with someone? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. So, you know, going back, right? So for us, if you look at the type of funds that we invest before, like Y Combinator or, you know, Saster, you know, like Air 10 or Entrepreneur First and so on, we really focus more than just financial returns, right? Even in this process, sometimes we identify first or second time fund that generate 10x or 100x, right? But our goal, again, as I said, like we want to find the venture capital equivalents of giants like Apple, like Amazon, you know, um, like Google and so on. So, you know, that's kind of like our aim. And in order to 
identifies those entrepreneurs we want to work with. A lot of that, like, you know, when you make a direct investment in, in the seed companies, right? So I don't, when we make an investment in the emerging managers, we think of that like a startups. <laughs> it's like, you know, a seed investment, right? In a venture fund, fund one and fund two is like a seed investment. And then you find, you know, product market fit, that's your fund three. And then, you know, whether you can create the, you know, Apple or Amazon, that's when you kind of like go public, right? That's when you have create like YC. YC, if you look at YC, is exactly the same. If you look at YC history, in 2012 to 15, that's when they find product market fit, right? And now they really take off and create their own brand. So what's really set these managers apart, and we don't look at TVPI and DPI and, you know, all of that metrics, it's good. But I think like if you create a brand and if you can create a solid firm, like just like on the startup side, the return will come, right? Like when you make an investment in a startup, similar concepts, right? It's not so much on TVPI. You back that this company can potentially go public and go can become a $10 billion, multi-billion dollars company or even $100 million company, right? So it's the same thing. We don't look at, you know, DPI, TVPI, IAS, because I think the returns will come if the venture capital firm can create a brand for themselves. So we really look for managers who can provide value to the startups and therefore you know they can create a brand in the ecosystem right like for example y combinator and saster those are platforms that have significant brand for startup right that's so interesting makes me wonder if we're not thinking big enough here in australia (laughs) a hundred percent we're not like i i find myself listening to you trying and just thinking like how many people do I meet in the Australian ecosystem who, even if they are visionary, right, they have like a very clear vision of what they want to build, feel able to communicate it to the Australian market without being penalized for being kind of unrealistic. You know, I imagine a world where younger Elon Musk goes to market in Australia on, you know, his first business or even like the, I don't think he would be able to get funding away for something like Tesla. I No. <laughs> so I think that's something for our Australian ecosystem to really level up our thinking on. The other thing that really jumps out to me there is as you're talking about it, the kind of DNA of the successful emerging fund manager who can kind of build that platform, that kind of Apple, Amazon mm-hmm. style, and the successful entrepreneur who can build the Apple, Amazon, actual business. Yeah. Is it the same DNA that you look for in someone? Is it the same skill set or is it kind of conceptually similar but actually tactically different skill sets? So that's a very good question. I think it depends on whether you view, you know, the venture capital firm as the corporations or you just view them as the fund managers, right? Mm. And I think, you know, there would be a unit innovation, right? So if you look at historically, when you evaluate a venture managers like, you know, the Sequoia, Excel, Andreessen, you look at the partnerships. You look at, you know, whether the partners has, you know, operating track record, whether they can add value to the portfolio companies, and then whether they, you know, has a brand with the entrepreneurs and so on, right? But, you know, as you evaluate like some of these firms, you look for what is a new high? What's the generation chain? Can they maintain, you know, the same you know, brand reputation and investment acumen as, you know, the earlier GPs, right? 
But then you, when you look at the newer models in venture capital, like, you know, the Y Combinator or the Entrepreneur First, it less so much on investment acumen. It's about like whether it's a solid corporations or not, right? Because you look at a models like an accelerator, like a Y Combinator or an Entrepreneur First, right? They create startup or they, they are almost like a factory of startup at scale, right? So YC graduate, you know, 450 companies per year to 500 companies per year, or, you know, 2000 companies um, in the next four years, right? Even more, right? So the way I'm looking at a Y Combinator, I'm looking, <laughs> I see like a Toyota, Honda, and so on. So I Reliable. evaluate some, yeah, I evaluate, you know, <laughs> I evaluate a fund managers like that, like a platform like that, you know, so when I look for these managers, I looking for Bunis innovation and I evaluate the Bunis innovation, the structures of the Bunis itself, the models itself. So when I evaluate a lot of these new venture models, I evaluate them more, you know, like the company. So, so it would be identify entrepreneurs who can create, you know, a firms, you know, corporations right mm-hmm. and you know i think and and when you evaluate a corporation it's very different than you know even evaluate a gp because in a way it's not so much on the track record of these firms right because again the check records will come if you own seven percent of high good quality products and you consistently produce you know good companies at the demo day and so on like so a lot of the time, it's really depend on the quality of the entrepreneurs that they can attract to the program and how well the program can run, right? So that's mm. that's the way to look at that. So you are right. For these new models, a lot of the time we want to find, you know, the Elon Musk of venture capital or the Steve Jobs of venture capital. It does sound like it's pretty similar, though. Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me as kind of like a marketplace business, no? Marketplace for... For the venture firm? Yeah. No, I don't think so. It's like, it's a corporate, it's like, it's a manufacturer. Hmm. Toyota, it's just like when you invest in Honda and Toyota from the beginning, but this is with startups. And guess what? These wins. But you also get a little piece of each car as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And that's why it's great, right? Because, you know, the value of the corporation, you know, the value of the corporation is the value of the companies that they create. Mm. So it's the same thing. If you create fantastic products, so their products right now is a startup that they produce, right? If you create like fantastic startups, then you will generate great returns. Mm. So it's a little bit different. Like, do I, do we look at the check record? Yes, we look at the check record over time because eventually, you know, after 10 years, if you have great brand with the entrepreneurs, your check record should reflect that in some way. You know, you should have some good companies coming out from that. Yeah. But it sounds like you're really focused on like the people to begin with, right? Like if they don't have a track record, that's not why. Yeah, I mean, first and second time fund managers. Exactly. You don't look at TVPI. You can't <laughs> look at TVPI and DPI until like terminal value because the TVPI can be manufactured too. How many funds that we went by FTX? I don't even know if accelerators track that. No, but I'm <laughs> I'm just talking about just think of the TVPI. How many funds when FTX what $40 billion? You know, the FTX, like, or hop in. Hop in is a great example. Maybe not FTX because it's an extreme. Hop in was $7 billion. 
how many funds out there that has a return of 10x based on hop in? A lot. 7 billion and it's got acquired by, you know, for 15 million valuation or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's my point. Like you can't look at TVPI and DPI early on. You need to look at the brand that these ventures firm build with the entrepreneurs because the return will come if you have a high quality brand, right? Absolutely. It's the same thing. Yeah. Apple is an amazing company, so return will come when you invest in Apple stock because the company is fantastic. Yes. <laughs> they make really good products. Yeah, they made really good products, yeah. I'm hooked now. I can't leave Apple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think like going back to the Australian ecosystem, what I see is that, so when I look at you know some of these global accelerators, they have the best founders from different geographies like LATAM, right, which is similar. They don't have like, you know, I mean, they don't have the same ecosystem like Silicon Valley. It's the same with Europe early on, right? And sometimes the best founders, they move to the US. So there's, I believe that, you know, if I look at, you know, Australia, there can be opportunities even to Europe like 10 years ago. That's when you start seeing some of the fun like index, local growth, you know, these are very great firms, right? Or, you know, point eyes, they start in Europe like maybe 12, 15 years ago. And, you know, there's a gap, right? Because a lot of the entrepreneurs who move to Silicon Valley or, you know, go to YC from these a different ecosystem, they need to go get to a certain metrics before they can get to the program. And I think that there's a good, great gap in terms of capital and investors that can deploy a you know, what I call pre-seed or seed before post-seed where they move to Silicon Valley, where, you know, there would be like local venture capitalists, you know, who can enable these startups to go to a certain, you know, certain stage before, you know, they can go to Silicon Valley. Absolutely. So I think that's, that's where I, I can see like, you know, great funds, you know, can, can form from these regional, you know, ecosystem, right? Same thing, you know, like, now Europe has become more mature that, you know, you start to see, you know, multi-stage firms in Europe, right? And you see, you know, companies actually stay in Europe, right? But early on, even the Collison brothers, founder of Stripe, right? They moved from England to San Francisco because there was no capital, there's no pre-seed, you know, nothing that can fund them in Europe, right? So if there was a fund that can fund, you know, thrive in Europe, then they would have stay before they move to Silicon Valley, right? So I do believe there's a gap there in the every single regional ecosystem, especially at early stage. Yeah, you're preaching to the converted, right? I think that's your whole fun thesis, isn't it, Maxine? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my fun thesis. That's my... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I mean, I, I totally agree, right? I think that there is like geo-specific because there's only, also there's only like a handful of people who can move or who are as geographically mobile to kind of move to Silicon Valley on an idea. Yeah. Right? Only a, a handful of people have the personal capital or the personal flexibility to be able to do that. Yeah. Then I think that if you build a system where it presumes that, you know, self people can self-fund that stage to be able to get those traction metrics, mm -hmm. then you are saying only the wealthiest people or the most connected people can build meaningful businesses. And I think I, re I reject that as a premise. I don't think that that's a good strategy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I also think that for, you know, my experience in the Bay area is that for folks that are coming kind of 
to the Bay Area outside of network, so to speak. So they like don't know a lot of people in the US and are not kind of a known commodity in the US. They need more metrics to show that they've got something of value and that they're kind of worth worth backing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there's obvious diversion paths here, right? Like you can go through YC and then if you get in to YC and then are successful there, it's a way to kind of drive that value. But yeah, I yeah, I absolutely think that that's true. So when you're thinking about you know, you're meeting all of these fund managers. What's amazing to me in your history is the kind of vantage point you get across LP positions. I mean, the fact that you have 50, you know, fund positions, 76 directs suggests to me that you have seen thousands and thousands of funds over your life to date. And you kind of um, get a visibility across your LP ecosystem, which, you know, I think our stats I saw is kind of anywhere up to the 36,000 institutional LPs that you've seen. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. You have more fund investments than I have direct investments. <laughs> yeah, it's wild, right? Like <laughs> truly incredible vantage point. Mm-hmm. Fund investment. But remember- Your indirect portfolio must be huge. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, exactly. Thousands of companies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what do you notice for fund managers that are you know, initially promising, but then- maybe aren't able to make the graduation from fund one to fund two or fund two to fund three or in kind of in your analogy there kind of get that early product market fit and then through to the ability to scale what what are the kind of failure modes that you notice for those fund managers yeah so i think like as i mentioned and you, I, I love it because you say like product market fit because you're right like when i look at you know first or second time fund managers it looked like a you know seed investment for us like it is like you made a Bad on the seed companies, it may take off and, or it may not take off. So one of the things that, as I mentioned earlier, is that when we invest in a fund managers, we want to look for an ambition, right? And we want to look for entrepreneurs or fund managers who want to establish a lasting venture franchise that's bigger than themselves, right? And one of the key thing is, you know, it's, it really Difficult to build a firm in platform, right? Than making investment. And some people may be a good investors, but they're just not good at building platform and or firms. And that is not sustainable over time, right? Because if you look at Andreessen, like Andreessen today, because they was able to build a platform that they can, you know, create values for company at scale, right? And that's why, you know, that's an indivisible firm over time because they have a brand with entrepreneurs. So I see a lot of the fund managers is number one common is just the ambition is not there. It's really hard. It's really hard to build a firm or the, the platform, right? Because I would buy a fund managers, just like, you know, like how you do a seed investment, obviously the entrepreneurs or the fund managers go and has this pitch about, because obviously we don't look at TVPI and DBPI. And we most likely know, you know, this person potentially can make a good investment judgment or, or not because they usually had an angel portfolio before, right? Or, you know, they may have, they may be a good operators or entrepreneurs in their prior investment career. But, you know, they would go and pitch an idea. It's like, you know, they're going to create this brand or platforms to, you know, scale the firm. But what end up after first fund, after the investment period, there's no firm building. There's no platform. There's no brand with, you know, the entrepreneur, especially after two funds. The returns may be there, but 
that was it. You know, they can't scale out of their personal brand. And some of them don't just, the ambition is not there because not everyone is Elon Musk. Like, because you might be a seasoned entrepreneur before you had successful exit before, and you may want to invest as, you know, your part-time hobby or something, but that's not the kind of like people we want to back, right? We want someone who's serious about creative investment firm and building companies are difficult. So a lot of people just give up. So I see some of our managers have, you know, 5X or 10X, and I don't want to name a name, but, you know, some had over 100X, but that was a one 100X fund and they never returned because, you know, sometimes people are too rich. Some of the managers are just too rich. The ambition is just not there anymore. <laughs> sometimes people are too rich. Man, to have that problem in my life, why can't I be one of those people? I want to be one of those. Oh, right? She's too rich. She can't, can't. I'm curious though, like, what do you mean by platform? Like when you say they can't build a platform, what do you mean? What are they, what do you want to see? Yeah. So if you look at why combinators, they build a platform, right? Because, you know, they accept, you know, like 30 or 4,000, maybe 30,000 application per, per year, uh, per, per batch. And then from that, they screen out 250 companies, right? And they have, you know, this platform where, you know, people go online, apply for that, you know, and there's a three months. Okay, you mean like an online platform? Not online platform. I'm talking about like providing service at scale. Okay. So think of Y Combinator. People go to YC is almost like getting in the brand of YC and then try to, you know, they help you with pitching, right? They help you with finding, you know fine-tune the product market fit phase so that, you know, you have, you know, scale very revenue very fast. Or if you look at first round capital, right? They have platform because they have, you know, they they have like, you know, hiring where they have, you know, startup hiring or have with products and so on. Same with Andreessen. That's what I meant. Platforms is, you know, almost like where you go and like it's almost like a startup university where you know you provide values to the startup at scale okay got it yeah that's what i mean so if i look at maybe i look at this if you look at saster right i mean obviously you know saster conference i know the mm-hmm. conference yeah yeah but i don't view the conference as a conference i view the saster conference as a platform why because they had the conference for you know SaaS founders ten thousand founders go to that conference you know, Jason Lemkin also has his, you know, content, um, you know, on Saster as well, where, um, you know, he advises mentors, SaaS founders and talk about his experience, you know, with EcoSci and, you know, with starting his, his, his SaaS companies before. So the way I view those are like platform. That's what I mean by platform. Got it. Whether you can provide service to the startup, it's, it can be software, it can be offline, but, you know, I... I think if you can create a software platform right now, it's so important because there would be just more and more companies, right? You know, the time when Steve Jobs go to, you know, Apple and Sequoia to ask money to raise money for Apple is not the same. There's only a handful of Steve Jobs. Right now, there's just more companies. And I think like there would be millions of startups being created with AI because it's so cheap to start a companies right now. Absolutely. See, I think it's better to have software. Yeah. Yeah. I think what jumps to mind for me is the like counterpoint to this, right? The like the version where a fund manager isn't building a platform. And as you highlighted, you know, there are some 
funds that build incredible returns, maybe one, two, three funds. You know, examples of this that jump to mind for me would be like Lockie Groom's fund or like individual investors that are building like a, a standalone fund where the value proposition to the founder is like, I will work directly with you as a fund manager. Whereas if you compare a 16 strategy, which is, mm. it is about the, the fund manager, but it's more about the kind of suite of services that they deliver to the companies that they work for to help de-risk that company. Exactly. So like a 16 was, you know, kind of, if I think about the history of fund management development and fund development, A16 was kind of the first one to make that platform strategy really built out. At scale. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, so they think about like, what are the key risk areas for these businesses? How can we help these businesses de-risk those key risk areas that are like commodified and not differentiated? Mm -hmm. Finding good talent, go to market very effectively, finding good PR. So they have you know, standalone teams that add that value to the customers, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, the customers to the, well, they are the customers, right? To the entrepreneurs and to their teams right. to help scale them. In first rounds example, um, it was awesome having that pla- the platform that they provided around the table with us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, my last company was backed by them. So I experienced that platform firsthand mm-hmm. and everything they did around connecting you with great people. Customers. Yeah. Customers having network, which was their kind of internal hiring yeah. process as well. They had like internal platform so that you could go on there and have a look, mm-hmm. you know, like it was kind of like Quora slash LinkedIn slash like angel list altogether. So they had data products, they had like a whole like kind of grab and go product set that you could take to yeah. kind of de-risk those key areas. And I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think those key areas, it's really valuable as a company working in that context and with one of these backers behind you because you get this whole extra ba- bucket of value that helps you deliver more effectively. Yeah, and Maxim and, and Cho, like building platforms right now is more important than the past, right? Mm. In order for you to generate high returns. Because as an venture, as an LP, is the way I look at it. You can be a good investor, but I'm not just backing if it, it is doing if it's just a traditional partnership like a Maxim or Cherry, right? I'm not just back when I invest in you. If you don't have a platform, I'm not just backing you whether you have a good investor. I need to back like you are lucky because <laughs> mm. there's just many more companies nowadays. I am incredibly lucky, Trang. I am the luckiest. <laughs> I know, but I don't want the interviewers of backing. I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> no, I'm not, I don't want interviewers of betting people who's lucky. Totally. I mean, it's good, but you know. <laughs> no, I get that. <laughs> I, I'd rather hear more short on gold. There's just like more <laughs> companies now being created. That's why you need to have platforms so that you have visibility in more companies and then you have first check in more companies. Yeah. And from there, you can double down on, you know, your winners. But I don't think, I think it's really hard to kind of build a traditional venture firm where you invest in, let's say if you have four partners, each partner invests in eight companies and just work at those companies. It's really hard. I mean, yes, you can still get the good returns, but I, I don't think you can scale over time. And then even that, I had to think about generation change, right? Because I had to think like, okay, what happened after Maxim and Cherry, right? <laughs> the next person, you know, that matters on themselves, right? Versus if I back a platform like a corporation, so I'm going back to the example like Y Combinator or, you know, like Toyota Honda, you know, this platform has built a brand that bigger than, you know, the GPs or founders themselves. And that is very important. Mm. 
You see, that's why I wouldn't get consistent returns over time. And I'm not betting on someone who is being lucky and I don't need to think about generation change and all of that, you know? You know, it's really interesting, Maxine. I don't know if you've noticed, but like in Australia, I I seem to see that like some of the funds that have fantastic returns but aren't as well known aren't uh, either maybe they're raising their next funds under under the radar, but I don't see them announcing that they've raised their next funds or that they've or even some of the ones that I know of aren't raising a next fund at all. And it kind of brings to mind, like, I wonder if that's because they're less well known and haven't been able or haven't been as successful at building that platform here. Hmm. Oh, they could have made like a billion in carry and decide like, you know what, I'm good at a billion in carry and I wouldn't retire. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> and I'm out. Just too rich. <laughs> it is a fund that's a 10-year commitment is a long time. So fair enough. If you made a billion in carry, like sweet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Officially on the beach. Yeah. What comes what jumps out to me though, and I think the brilliance of Trang's model is that like it's tiring and a long-term thing to build three funds, right? They're like two to four years each. If you build three funds in succession, for some people that's like a decade of work. And so it's possible that they're just getting to the end of their kind of value creation period. And to kind of underline this point, I think there is value created in that strategy. Of course there is, right? Like the like carry and fund returns are reflected there. Of course, yeah. Yeah. But what I think is interesting is Trang's strategy is more about like long-term, like really long-term thinking, which was fascinating, you know, looking at your first investment decision is really built in there. I maybe just like a personally curious, I feel like with that long-term thinking and the bias that you have to be able to think across that long-term, you kind of dropped a little Easter egg in there that, you know, millions of companies are going to be started in this kind of AI, new AI world. From your vantage point and through your lens, what do you think the startup ecosystem looks like in say, five years in 2028 what do you think it's going to look like yeah i think those are very good questions now interest rate has not come down so it's not there's a lot of tourist investor has gone out so at least you know i think like there will be more quality high quality founders but one of the things that i see well we recently back an ai accelerator where ai is your co-founder of the startup <laughs> technical co-founder yeah I mean, how do you going to do the, well, <laughs> they do the cap management, you know, they can co-create, you know, co-pilot the coding. <laughs> they can go through their emails and that will get better over time. But, you know, the first thing is that, you know, they they can do their, like a lot of these early stage stuff, you know, like not tech, not just technical, but like maybe like technical and operation co-founders, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of. Does the AI get equity? <laughs> How much equity does the AI get? How do no, you, de- how, do you think... how do you determine that? No, that's the beauty of the model, right? The AI would not get equity. Yeah, right. But oh, the people who well. create the accelerators that create that AI, who is a co-founder of the startup, wouldn't get equity. Oh, interesting. See, there's the model. Yeah. So the accelerator delivers the like co-founder who is an AI. AI. Because I mean, I'm, like I have seen products that do like AI for go-to-market, AI for customer validation. Like that's a really like a super fascinating model. I do I do think we are at the beginning of an era of multiple $100 million to even, you know, maybe a billion-dollar company with only a handful of team members mm-hmm. that uses AI to scale. I think so too. The only thing that I had to say is that I would like to think so and I believe it. I just thinking of... 
yes, you can create a companies, but remember, as I said, to be uh, enough customer buyers as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I do see technology going advance. What I haven't seen, especially in SaaS, is a SaaS sales cycle. Hmm. Done, but with AI. You know, it's still like take a very long time, right? The sales cycle for SaaS products still take a... Yeah. Like you can create an amazing product, but you need to have customers. That's my point. Right. Yes, of course. Or you could just have a bunch of AI customers. Maybe AIs are going to need <laughs> so software eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And where's the capital come from? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> How do you value the companies? Yeah. Yeah. I do think it poses an interesting question for investors because traditionally, as you said at the kind of outset of this conversation is like venture, you have to take risk. Yeah. That is the nature of venture capital. Yeah. And increasingly as you're co-founding maybe with an AI co-founder or you are using AI to scale, mm -hmm. I don't know how deep that loss-making period is before you're able to unlock upside and therefore how much capital you need to fund that that valley you know yes at scale on average 30 percent of your revenue goes to growth if you're trying to grow at that trajectory but that also might be something that is no longer true in, in a world where companies have a whole bunch of agents or a whole bunch of ai that is delivering it so i do think there's a kind of open strategic question for us as a asset class yeah of in the future, will we continue to take the depth of risk that we have in the past? And if not, can we, like, do we have a place here or do we need to find a different place to start investing? You know, I've already seen kind of a trend towards deep tech, which I think is an interesting question. Mm -hmm. An open kind of area for curiosity for me is right now, especially in the Australian ecosystem, but kind of across the world, we're fairly bearish on venture. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of hear it kind of across the LP group, but also... You know, with angel investors and even founders, and I think that's why you see only the most convicted founders kind of building their companies. You have, as I mentioned, this incredible vantage point both across fund managers, direct companies, but also through LPs. I'm wondering, what are you hearing out there? What are people talking about in terms of venture as an asset class? And where do you think it will go? Here, I think most of the LPs right now, the reason why they're skeptical in investing in venture, it's not so much on they don't believe in venture because I think ventures is impacting all of our asset class. Mm, agreed. I really, if, as long as you have tech in your portfolio, I don't care buyout, public equity, or you know debt. As long as there's a tech component, that's your venture exposure, right? Mm. And I do believe that LP still fundamentally believe in venture as an asset class. So we think that difficult for to deploy capital right now was because of liquidity crunch, right? Because, you know, there's a period of 2021 where we had the best venture market, right? IPOs have raised over 600 billion or six, some crazy number, 645 billion, right? And then, you know, everything was marked at 100x multiple, right? Then, you know, you look in 2022, you have the worst IPO market ever, right? So there's not a lot of liquidity back for the LPs. In 2023, there's like, we talk about many times, my saying that there's like three good tech IPO, like solid, and those are very solid companies that go IPO, right? Tragic. Yeah, it's like tragic. So LPs, on the one hand, they still overweight a lot on venture and they didn't get any liquidity, right? And they really overweight because 
a lot of the companies are still at paper valuation or has not mapped out to the public com. Right? Look at Instacart, amazing, fantastic company, but it was forty billion in public market, as uh, a private market, and ten billion in the private market. Right? A lot of the fund managers, especially some of the brand name, has evolved from being a venture capital firm to become multi-stage firms, multi-assets. In you know an asset manager period, right? I, I don't want to you know say out loud, but they're not gonna get you venture return. But the whole point is they have so much dry powder that they can keep doing bridge route for their company. So you don't see these company go down route as well. So then LP has these overweight hyper you know paper valuation on the venture portfolio. So it's a way overweight. And that's the reason why they cannot deploy in new managers or venture. It's not because, you know, they think that, oh my God, the return is so bad. No, it's not. Hmm. It's because they are very overweight in venture. And then, you know, some of them has invest in tourist investor and obviously get crashed and burn on that. But I think most of it's get investor didn't invest in those, those tourist managers. I think what's really interesting for me there is I hear from Australian LPs and I actually, I wonder, this is probably a sh- shoot myself in the foot moment, but like, I wonder if they're actually looking at the outside of that industry and seeing big international LPs not deploying to venture, not understanding the driver of it. And the takeaway is that they, like LPs are not strong on venture. They're not as excited about it as an asset class. And then what's driving their behavior is they also are kind of starting to pull back from venture not because they're overweight, but because they think it's kind of not in vogue. I hear that feedback from quite a few wealth management platforms and some family offices, which is RLP based, which I think was, which is really interesting. Actually, it's the inverse here. Yeah. It's like, they're so bullish on it that they're overweight on it. (laughs) And now they actually can't. Mm -hmm. They still overweight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From a construction perspective. From the asset allocation, you know, and liquidity constraint. But I was, I'm, I'm here in Arizona. I was at this conference that, you know, know there's hundreds of LPs in the US and you know everyone the whole conference is about venture venture is the most important asset class now Hmm. if you think tech if look at that tech is impacting everything in your life and AI is impacting everything that you do right yeah so how is that you know like if you not invest in ventures <laughs> you not invest in the future of asset management venture is in every single asset class <laughs> right just for the folks in the back yeah <laughs> if they need to hear that again yeah. <laughs> should we repeat that i it's so funny though like that's so obvious to you but in australia that's not like the average person that you talk to is like tech doesn't have any influence in my life yeah which is absolutely not true it's Absolutely not true. Yeah, it would influence agriculture as well. Hundred <laughs> percent. You went and see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you not, the thing is, like, if you don't invest in that, you're gonna get behind, you know, and someone will replace you. <laughs> you're already behind. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, once again, for those in the back. Right, right. <laughs> Even that mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I really think venture. Uh, I mean, look at, at. I mean, I can't tell the name, but one of our clients at one point Uber the whole position. Whoa. Driving sixty percent of their entire endowment returns. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> because they was in the managers that seed Uber very early on, and they have a big position in that manager. Mm. But that's my point. Holy moly! Everything you do is tech. Everything you do is venture. It's just whether you 
recognized or not, you know? Right, and yeah. And one of the things that people don't recognize, let's say if I'm an early investor in Tesla, right? Like you invest in a fund that, you know, see Tesla early on. When Tesla went IPO, you don't need to go and sell it for cash. You, if you're bullish on Tesla, you can keep holding that position. So then you still have this public position in your portfolio. Why should you ever sell Facebook or Apple or Amazon, right? When you get distribution back from your venture managers. 100%. Fair. Yeah. So I think it's not about venture. It's, it's more about identify the tech companies. And if that's a good tech company, hold it in your portfolio. It doesn't matter whether it's private or public. A hundred percent. That's my, yeah. you know, that's my belief. Yeah. It's really interesting. We see a version of this at the moment. Obviously, Australia is very heavy, heavily weighted to Canva's success from a bunch of different vectors. You know, a lot of wealth was created for the early venture fund managers yeah. by being in Canva. You know, our big funds, all of them are in Canva. And then there's a lot of employee kind of equity upside that's in Canva. And so it's liquidity or absence of liquidity. You can see it in the Australian venture ecosystem. And so there's a huge push at the moment for a lot of folks, I think because for that overweighting reason to try and like get liquidity from Canva and you'll see Goldman Sachs kind of doing that um, secondary in Goldman, sorry, in Canva. But it's an interesting counter position here from you being like, well, hey, like if you think they're a great company and they have kind of great elements to them, like you should be holding that stock for as long as you think that that's the case. Exactly. Especially for sophisticated investors. As long as you think that it is the case. Yeah. Especially like if you had large pool of capital, right? If you had a smaller, you know, pool of capital, I understand you need liquidity. It's fine. And sure. maybe if you are in Canva seed, sell on the secondary may be good so that the LPs can deploy, you know, get some distribution and deploy new managers and so on. Mm. If you if you are like a sovereign wealth fund, so big poor capital, I genuinely believe you will have good companies on the private market and so venture capital will distribute to you. You should just hold it in the public market and it wouldn't do well for you. Because if you sell it and then your public manager pick it up, you are just paying <laughs> fever to to hold the same position (laughs) (laughs) truth truth yeah it makes me think of block i think sequoia says that they really wish they had held block through through ipo because more value was created post ipo than it was prior to ipo and so that was a very painful position i didn't put two and two together that for the lps in sequoia like they ended up paying it twice because their public market managers bought it again and then (laughs) you know held up for the rest of the period of time I just feel like that has zoomed. I feel like I've just looked at the clock and we are way over. And so I am so grateful for this chat. This is the last question we always ask everyone. I'm super excited to hear your thoughts here. But what was the biggest big kahunas moment you've had in your journey today? That moment where you felt super brave for what you were doing. So still today, we back an AI accelerator where the co-founder is an AI agent mm. instead of a person and I think like when we present this idea to a lot of ELPs they I don't think like I think 99% of the people don't believe in it <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of like our key investment thesis right we identify the future of venture capital and we basically say you know what what we really think right now is the future of capital AI will be your co-founder so we sure. you know that's the you know I think like we always think outside the box, right? And I, I really think when, if you look at YC, YC wasn't a copy of Sequoia. 
when we back an entrepreneur first, EF wasn't a copy of YC as well. I believe that in order for you to generate outside return and alpha, you just need to go and look really stupid in front of a lot of people for a long period of time, like the Tesla example. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> On it. I love it. What a wonderful way to wrap it up. That's the key takeaway, everyone. Just be comfortable to look really dumb. <laughs> you just need to look really stupid for a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us, Drang. This, like always, has been an incredible conversation and we're so grateful for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, take care.